Okay, Harrison, you ready? You ready for our special guest? I so am. Let's let's just let's just do it. This is so much. Let's fun. just have him on. Yeah. All right. Hello, everyone. It's no, producer no. Na- it's producer no, Nick. No, get out. no. no. Ow, I told you, you, you can't no. talk this entire podcast. Okay. It's not you. You're not special. Oh. We're not having you on. But I'm a child of God. You are, and that's very nice. But you're gonna be a very quiet child of God while we talk to a very important bishop. Okay. <laughs> yes, Father Anthony. Good. Good. <laughs> Go get me a coffee. Okay. <laughs> oh, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm hanging out at um, <laughs> uh, my brother's house, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, let's see, what else is going on? No, I'm just, uh, I've been thinking all day about uh, doing this interview. Yep. And that's that's all I got, Harrison. I just, I'm just ready that's to jump a, in. That's all you got? Really? That's all I got. Well, first, we should welcome people then to Clerically Speaking. I, okay. Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. And we'll have Bishop Barron here in a second. Uh, I want to share a story before we go in, if that's okay. Okay, do a story. I want to share a story from yesterday. Give people a little peek behind the priesthood again. I tweeted Mm -hmm. about this, but I think it's an important story to share. So yesterday, um, you know, Sunday, busy day, I had some phone interviews. I had masses, obviously. I had a baptism prep thing to do. Um, And so in between masses, I'm up in in my office for a brief time of studying because that's all the time I really had to do for studying yesterday. And uh, I'm in there studying away and my sacristan comes up, says, oh, there's someone here who wants to talk to you. I'm like, not right now. Like, this is not the most convenient time. I'm sorry. No, sure. Yeah. Take a message. He goes downstairs, comes back up. Well, his sister's dying and they want you to go anoint her. I'm like, well, I can't right now. I've got masses. So I said, Go get her, go get his number and I'll, I'll call him after mass. Let him know I'll call him after mass or whatever. And and I'll be honest, I probably could have gone downstairs. I was frustrated in the moment because that's what happens in priesthood. Sometimes you organize your day perfectly to get everything done, and <laughs> then true. something throws you off your 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 rhythm. And mm-hmm. that honestly, that kind of throws me off sometimes. I don't like it, but that's what happens. Um, and you know, thankfully God is patient and kind and generous and works with you on that. And so I phoned the guy afterwards and I said, well, okay, I've, I've moved my day around. I can come around 2.30. And this is guy is, uh, he goes, okay, well, come pick me up now, just so people are aware. This guy is, uh, this is First Nations. I'd be going to the reserve in town to anoint his sister. Uh, and I'll be honest, because of COVID, I'm not exactly keen on picking someone up. Sure. But um, I've also always recognized that when we're dealing with First Nations people, we have there's there's a lot of sensitivity at play, and I didn't. And he's an elder; he's a former chief of the tribe for like 22 years. I don't want to rustle feather ruffle feathers either. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the risk. I said, okay, fine, I'll pick you up at 2:30. So I pick him up, and he comes into the car with a blanket. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe it's for his sister, right? Or maybe he's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah, who knows? So I go, I go. We go. We drive to his sister's place. We have a nice little chat in the car. I'm, I'm masked up at least and stuff like that. And, uh, um, and we go to his sister's place and I anoint her. I, I bring her communion and everything. And then, um, you know, not not too long of a visit. Very nice visit. She could, she was very much grateful for the sacraments and everything. And some family were obviously around. She's actively dying from cancer. Her name's Diane, if people want to pray for her. And uh, and then we get back into the car, and I drive this man back to his house. And as we're, we're pulling up, um, he shakes my hand. He goes, thank you for all you do for the community. And he hands me the blanket that he brought into the car. Now, this is a First Nations blanket. So this is mm-hmm. not everything that someone from the First Nations gives you is imbued with 
a lot of symbol and a lot yeah. of meaning. And he goes, this is for you, for your protection. Because like, now they don't mean this in like a sense, like they just recognize the deep spiritual meaning of things. And like sure. a, a blanket brings warmth and comfort and thus protection. And that's what they kind of mean by this. And so uh, he goes, this is, this is a gift for me to you and I want you to have this. And I was like overwhelmed. Yeah, that's <laughs> really like, cool. Because that is a huge honor to receive from someone in the First Nations, especially when you just meet, met them for the first time. Usually these things take months to build relationships and it happened over an anointing. And so God made up for my selfish nature and my frustration in the moment and still worked it for good. And so I share that because A, I'm not a perfect priest and I, you know, we go through those. I mean, I mean I'm sure you've had those moments too where you're just like, ah. Really, right now? Oh, uh, absolutely! Right. I remember. Uh, well, there was one time, and it's funny because it's very like your your human like nature just like pulls at you. Like I had done a huge day of regular ministry stuff. I had just bought my McDonald's, and I was going home. And I was very excited to eat it, and you get an anointing call, and your first reaction yep. is, "Ah, I have to do a thing." But uh, I think if you if you're trying to be a good priest, the Lord helps you out, and He'll exactly. like <laughs> talk you like, off the ledge. Like, no, just go do your job. Go be a priest. Go be a father, and you do it. And I've never regretted doing it. But yeah, you feel those 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 normal human tugs towards selfishness or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was the thing. Like it, it, it also then it becomes a reminder that God wants to bring grace in the inconvenience, mm-hmm. and and that this. But that's the thing. It also is a purifying grace to help me remember in the future that, um, hey, when someone comes, it's okay to just drop everything and just to at least and go, at least yep. at least to say, okay, I can't go right now because I got mass in half an hour, but. I can come after mass or I can come right. in a couple hours and just to not worry about being inconvenienced. It happens as a priest. I'm sure. Cause it's the thing. It happens with parents too. Sure. Why is my kid vomiting at 2 AM in the morning? I just want to sleep. I got a busy day tomorrow. Right. And there's those moments of like, ah, oh. but that's part of love is doing it. Even if you know, it's going to be an inconvenient. And in fact, that is, yeah, it's, you say, okay, I'm going to accept this and just go on with it. But it was a really, yeah, it was very powerful. I, I didn't tear up, but I wanted to, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? it's like, it was a very emotional moment and it was really cool. So I just wanted to kind of share that with people because it says, Hey, we priests are not perfect and we will get selfish sometimes, but God works through that and says, yeah, but I want you to do this anyways. And so I'm going to, and it was funny because the next mass, that was just hanging on my conscience, the entire mass. And sure. I'm like, I, if I want to be a saint, I have to call. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I said, obviously I want to go anoint. It's just like, I, it was just, it was, in, unfortunately it came on a day where I was already really busy. And so yeah. my brain was struggling to figure out how am I going to organize all of this? But yeah. But as beautiful as that story was, and you told it very appropriately, you were uh, vulnerable and admitting your faults, but also that God's grace raised you above those faults. Nobody cares. Nobody cares because <laughs> everyone's super excited for our big guest and an hour-long interview with Bishop Robert Bear. No, wait, not, wait. not producer Nick. No, not wait. producer Nick. What? No. no, no. But are they really excited for Bishop Barron's interview, or are they really excited for the new bumper? Oh my gosh! Uh, I'm I'm or both. maybe more both. excited for the bumper. Of goods, it's kind right? of like you it's know, a it's of kind of like, you can be excited about both things. It's like the first Avengers uh, movie. You're excited for the crossover. You're excited for the whole experience of it. It's just gonna be. It's gonna be great. Yay! Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do it. Bum, 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 Bishop Barron speaks bum, on bum, clerically bum, speaking. Bum, 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 bum,
So, Bishop Barron, welcome to uh, Clerically Speaking. Thank you. Thanks for having me, you guys. We're very clerical today. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm actually a little disappointed because in our Zoom meeting, uh, we were in the two boxes up top, and Bishop Barron's on the bottom for us, which is reverse hierarchy, which makes me uncomfortable, but it's nothing personal. <laughs> I'm on the top on my screen Good, here, that's, right? <laughs> that makes sense. That works. <laughs> So I want to start off with a very important question, Bishop, because yeah. uh, a lot of people want to know. Uh, and uh, I hope you feel comfortable answering this. Um, we want to know who can bench more, you or Father Steve Grunau? Oh, there's no question about that. <laughs> I stopped <laughs> bench pressing when I was in, probably in high school, you know, so I think uh, he can easily out, out bench press me. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> So we're really happy to have you on. Uh, one of the key parts of our podcast is we really like to reflect on the nature of the priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, we like to share people the inner, you know, in a general way, the inner workings of the priestly life and um, to give people a little peek behind the curtain of what priests go through every day. Yeah. Um, and, and that's been a really, I think, helpful thing for a lot of Catholics who listen to our podcast. Now, you yourself, before you became auxiliary in L.A., you were formed in or you were the rector at Mundelein Seminary for how long? Rector for only three years, 2012 through 2015. And how long were you in formation there for? Long time. I mean, so I was on the faculty from 92 until kind of on and off until I became rector. But for maybe the seven years before becoming rector, I was doing a lot of this work in evangelization and media, but I was still teaching part-time. So for many years, I was involved as a teacher at Mundelein. Okay, awesome. So now, like, I think one thing people maybe, you know, seminary is this kind of a uh, vague thing for a lot of people. They're not sure what, why did, why does the church have her seminary system? Why is that important in the formation of future priests? Well, the word comes from um, seminarium, which means seedbed. So a place where seeds can grow into these plants that we hope are, are lively and flourishing. So it's a place of, of cultivation. And we say now discernment. Uh, it's a place where you can ask and answer those questions well. You know, so is God calling me? Part of that is a theological education. Part of it is spiritual direction. Part of it is formation. Part of it is human formation. But the overall purpose of a seminary is to be the locus, you know, the place where you can ask and answer those questions effectively. Because um, finally, it's not a matter of what you want. It's what God wants. And so you're discerning not, well, now, is this what I want to do with my life? That's the wrong question. It's, is this what God wants me to do with my life? And there are different ways to... Uh, to ask and answer that question. So that's what a seminary really is all about. So you were in uh, seminary formation. Did you enter out of high school uh, for no. a seminary for yourself? No, I went to the University of Notre Dame uh, my first year out of high school. And then uh, my second year in college, I transferred to the um, college seminary outside Chicago. And then from there, I got this Basilin Scholarship, which is a scholarship at Catholic University in Washington. So I began at Notre Dame, then entered the college seminary, and then went to Catholic U, and uh, I got my, my master's degree in philosophy from Catholic U, and then I came back to Mundelein to do my own formation as a priest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so different priestly assignments are, I mean, are different, obviously. Did you ever uh, have an interest in seminary formation? Was it a surprise when you were asked to do it? How did that work out? 
Well, I was in a parish for three years. Of course, in those days, too, we did a whole year as deacon in a parish. So I was in a very busy parish on the southwest side of the city of Chicago. And then I was sent to a parish near O'Hare Airport. If you've flown into O'Hare, you've been right near the parish where I was. Um, they knew that when I was a student at the seminary that I was you know, good at theology and philosophy and that sort of thing, and I had an academic interest. So they were always looking for potential professors. So I think you know, they knew and I kind of knew that possibly I would be asked to go for studies. And so after three years in a parish, I was uh, invited to go for doctoral studies and went over to Paris and did that. A lot of people understand what makes a good pastor. People have had experience of a priest as a pastor. But yeah. the skills of being a pastor aren't necessarily the same as being a good formator. Uh, what makes a priest a good formator in seminary? Well, I guess I'd look at those four pillars of formation from uh, Pastoris Dabo Vobis, the famous text of John Paul II, you know, human formation. So are you good at helping people uh, develop psychologically and, and personally and, and physically, you know, to, to be a, a, a strong, integral person. There's spiritual formation. Are you a person of prayer? Do you know how to guide other people into prayer? My specialty would have been intellectual formation. So are you trained as a, as a theologian? Can you help people think their way through uh, the faith? And then pastoral formation. Uh, can you help people uh, learn to be a good pastor. And so everyone at Mundelein, with a couple of exceptions, maybe some of the real old-timers on the faculty, but the rest of us all had had, you know, substantial pastoral experience. Mine was, if you count the deacon year, you know, four years in two very busy parishes. So there's really nothing a parish priest does that I didn't do at some point. So I think those four areas, if you're, if you're competent, now I specialized in, in one. So different faculty members will specialize in different areas. Mine was in theology, but I think all four are important if you're going to do seminary work. So, so I, you know, it was interesting when we were in seminary. We always joked about how often we heard about pastoris dabos phobies. It was yeah, like because right. you just hear it over and over. Okay, yes, yeah. we get it. The four pillars. Is, but it it kind of it kind of in a way that repetition kind of got it ingrained in yeah. you. But I I think in some ways one of the most revolutionary things in a good sense of the word revolution that John Paul II did was introduce human formation. Yeah. To the seminary program. Um, can we can you talk a bit about the impact of, of of introducing that as a pillar into priestly formation? Well, and I think he's a, a good Thomist there, right? Thomas would say grace builds on nature. And so if your natural formation, if you want, your human formation isn't solid, then we're trying to build this kind of edifice of grace on top of that. It's not going to last. So I think it is foundational. Now, it's not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Probably my generation just after the council would have gotten maybe a hyper stress on call it psychological formation, uh, maybe to the detriment of, of theological and spiritual formation. So I don't think he means that in some exclusive way, but I think it's a foundational element. Mm -hmm. And when I was, especially as rector, when it was really my responsibility to make the final call about a student, I was always very attentive to human formation. Is this a, a, a normal, healthy human being relating well to people with a sense of humor, a sense of, of his own limitations. I mean, all the things you look for in healthy psychological development, I looked very carefully for that when I was uh, rector. But then that's not the whole story. I mean, you can be a very psychologically well-adjusted person, but not a very good priest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's more to it than, there's more to it than just being a good, well-adjusted person. And you have to have these other uh, elements of formation too. 
you know, as a seminarian, maybe it's because we're constantly being evaluated, but one of our hobbies was to critique the seminary system. And the one thing we would uh, often go back and forth on is, uh, and every seminary is obviously different. Uh, I went to Catholic University and uh, theological college. Oh, you were a TC guy. I was a TC guy. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, I lived there for three years, yeah. But uh, one of the things we would talk about is, is the seminary model formatted um, or wedded too much to the academic model? Like, it, it felt... Um, like most of our time and energy was put into academic studies. And we had other formation, mm-hmm. um, but that happened more in uh, spiritual direction and formation advising when you were one-on-one with a priest talking about your discernment, your spiritual life, what was going on. Like, is there value in integrating more of a mentorship sort of thing? Because I felt like that's where I got most of my formation. The academic was great, but I don't know if you had thoughts on that. Uh, well, of course, everyone's got a spiritual director in the seminary. So, and then you've got a, a what we call the formation advisor at Mundelein. So, you had two figures who were there kind of as a, in a mentoring role. The formation advisor had to report to the rector and to the bishop and so on when he visited. Then, of course, the spiritual director, we use our jargon, was the uh, internal forum person, right? You, it was all private between you and the spiritual director. So, I, I like that relationship, as you call a mentoring one. Um, and then, of course, in pastoral formation, guys would go out to a parish. I'm not sure how TC does that now, but we had you know pretty strong pastoral programs at Mundelein where you had a mentor there who was guiding you through that process. Um, I, I would say actually in my time, now I'm, I'm going back before you guys, um, we probably underplayed the academic. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think in the wake of John Paul II and all that, we, we brought that back into a, a stronger position. But you could always debate, I suppose, which one is getting too much emphasis. It's a matter of, of prudence. Um, I thought at Mundelein we, we hit the balance pretty well. But I do like the mentoring idea. So spiritual director, uh, formation advisor, someone that really is going to walk with you. And that was the way I always put it when I was rector was, is this guy exhibiting all four dimensions of, of formation? And, you know, be attentive to all of them. And I think like, is it I think it's a Denver they have a, almost like a parish model like where a yeah. lot of guys live in a house or a rectory with their with their formation head and and they they're their ministries in that parish so they get integrated into parish life a bit more which I I've always found a very fascinating model. you know what that goes back to I remembered very well when yeah. I was a student in Paris yeah uh, Cardinal Lustiger who was uh, in some ways the John Paul II of France he was this wonderful charismatic figure. I used to hear him preach all the time on Sunday evening at Notre Dame. But anyway, Lustiger had that model, which was what you're describing. Yeah. And I remember Cardinal George of Chicago, this goes back many years, was intrigued by it, to have like groups of seminarians live in a parish and then commute to some place where they would have their studies. But the main focus would be their community life within a parish context. So, you know, I think there's something interesting about that. And there's something I think what you know, because one of the problems today is like a lot of people think priests are lonely, uh, priests are unhappy, etc. And we have uh, there's odd views around celibacy sometimes that they they see people see celibacy as a burden and not as a gift. And I think something like this model can actually help build up the idea like that priests, even if they're not living together, have they've built up a friendship and a brotherhood together in community so that yeah. that community flows out after their formation. Yeah. I mean, I know for myself, we, ours was a regional seminary. And so we, our guys were from Vancouver Island to Winnipeg yeah. and, and who came out for formation. 
we almost never see each other, but we mm-hmm. try our best to keep in touch. And, and if we sometimes we'll go on vacations together and stuff like this to keep that because we that that's the whole point of seminary. And I just find like if you're in a more local place like Chicago or something like that or Denver, that model can really help build up the presbyterate in the future. I've always felt strongly about that. And we've talked about it for a long time. We've never really done it, though, which is to get priests living together in an intentional community. As you say, it can work better in a Chicago or an urban area where priests could then go out to their various places. In uh, your part of the world, it might be tougher to do that. But I've always liked that idea. Call it a semi-monastic, if you want, or a community life is built up around prayer in common, meals in common. Because I hate that uh, loneliness of, of the priest. It can happen. If mm-hmm. a guy gets isolated mm-hmm. and um, they start living as a loner, and there can yeah. be very bad things associated with that. So I like priests you know, having a chance to live uh, in community. Well, plus when you're in community, you rub up against each other sometimes, right? Yeah. You, you, those normal human interactions that actually form you as a human being will make you a better priest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned something, though, which is this um, impression out there that priests are unhappy. Remember, this goes back, I don't know, maybe it's 10 years or longer, those surveys that were done. One was on the cover of Time magazine, I remember. And it was this, to a lot of people, very surprising finding that of all the professions, all the professions, mm-hmm. the happiest people were clergy people. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. Not just Catholic priests, but, but Catholic priests were, were especially high in that regard. Uh, you look at the whole range of, of occupations and vocations, clergy people were, were the happiest. <laughs> but there is this common view, and of course the sex abuse scandal didn't help one little bit with that perception. Um, but it, it's it's a false perception that you know, priests are kind of a brooding, unhappy <laughs> bunch. You know, it's really on the contrary. Yeah. The objective evidence was showing over and over again. Also, um, What's his name? Stephen Rossetti, you know, Monsignor Rossetti, who's done a lot of work with troubled priests and so on, has always maintained that, that the statistics uh, indicate that clergy people are among the happiest people in our society. Yeah, but I want to bring some of the practicalities of living in community in a diocese right now, because the experience of a lot of guys who've been ordained around my time, you know, uh, give or take 10 years, have started to float this idea and floated at, you know, a priest council and this sort of thing. But there's some practical difficulties that we run into. Like one of my concerns is I would never want living community to get in the way of obedience to the bishop as far as assignments and how Mm -hmm. you do that. And another thing that we kind of ran up against was um, there's some worry about some members of the presbyterate that there would be kind of a Mm clickishness. Like if you get all these young guys who think the same way, could that be a problem? Which actually I agree with. I think sometimes when we think of community or people talk about community, they think about getting all of your best friends to live together. And anyone who's been (laughs) spent any time in seminary and religious know this as well, that's not really what community right. is, you know? Yeah, and that's that's fair, I think. At Mundelein, we had, we call them cams from a camarada in Latin, but they were little sections of the, of the house where the students lived, hallways. And the idea behind the cam was that you'd have a mix of, of uh, years and you have a mix of, you know, perspectives, and you didn't want what you're describing, like we're all, you know, the people that think the same way. And and the idea was to prepare people to live in, in rectories where you'd have a mix. Now, to be fair, that's changed a lot. When, when the cams were invented back in the 1920s, you had rectories with lots of priests in them, mm-hmm. four or five sometimes. Now, it's more typical, even in a place like Chicago, that a priest is by himself or maybe one other person. So it is different. But I think you're right, and you have to be careful with that. And, and you're right, the bishop has the prerogative to assign. 
and it can't be a matter of, oh, look, I, I won't go there because then I can't be living with the community I'm used to. So I, I get that. Um, but I think we probably could, with a little you know, brain power, work that one out. Yeah. I, I have a friend who's in a, a religious community in Canada, and he told me like the older generation, they don't think the same way theologically as he does. But because of their community life and the charity that's shown towards each other, like he's come to actually really appreciate them. He yeah. says to me, he has this beautiful thing. He says, you know, Harrison... They could have left in the 70s, but they stayed. Yeah, right, right. Right. And he goes, and he really helped me to to change my mindset about, you know, about that. He says, no, these are people who are, yeah, maybe I don't agree with everything sometimes, but these people stayed. They want to be faithful to the church. And, and yeah. that, that life of community where there were those differences really helped them appreciate, um, appreciate the difference and to live common charity together. But, yeah, quite right. But, you know, this also brings up something else then is... Um, as you're, I'm sure you're aware, we're, we're, we're on the verge of like a, a bit of a demographic cliff <laughs> um, yeah. around the priesthood. And I, uh, as a young, pri- younger priest, um, that, you know, I, I look at things and I think in 10 years in my diocese, there might be five incarnated guys at work because the rest have either retired or have passed on. Hmm. Do you have advice? Because like I think this is a common experience right now. It's like we're recognizing that there's there was a generation gap, it seems, almost in, in vocations. And so yeah. there's going to be a gap that's going to come along, and there's going to be a lot more responsibility placed on younger guys, perhaps quicker than they would like, and which would, which would probably be normal. Do you have advice for younger priests out there about uh, about that? And like, how can the church respond to this in a robust way? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, priests have got to reproduce themselves, right? I think mean, it's very important that that priests find their own successors. And there might have been a time when we weren't as attentive to that as we should have been. You know, priests say, well, okay, here's my life, but, you know, it's I'm not going to try to draw someone uh, to it. But we should, you know, that's, that's part of our responsibility. And maybe get two people to replace you, get two or three. So I think that's incumbent upon all priests, uh, old and young, is to keep your eyes open for someone that can succeed you. For the younger guys in themselves, I'd say stay close uh, to your life of prayer and stay focused on the work that's in front of you. In a way, you can't solve you know, a grand demographic uh, problem, mm-hmm. um, but stay faithful and stay connected to the spiritual sources. But keep your eyes open all the time for your successors. Uh, I think that's extremely important. Uh, we've been wrestling with this for a long time. When I was mm-hmm. your age, when I was younger, everyone saw the same thing. Now, it, it didn't collapse. And one interesting thing is even the sex abuse scandal didn't cause it to collapse. Uh, mm-hmm. We kept, in the seminary world, kept waiting for the numbers to fall off the table. And frankly, they didn't mm-hmm. in the wake of the scandals. We kept waiting for it. and It never happened. Uh, so, you know, don't give up hope. But uh, keep looking for your successors, I'd say. Yeah, going back to kind of what we talked about just a moment ago, as far as generational ga- gaps in presbyterates, I've, the one thing I found interesting, it's kind of difficult to get guys together to have a conversation. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, my uh, diocese right now still has a good number of priests, uh, some of which I've never had a conversation with. And it seems the difficulty is whenever the 
diocese tries to do a uh, meeting of priests, yeah. either annual or whatever, there's, um, I think everyone likes complaining about their boss, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's just a human thing to do. Right. And there's sometimes like just distrust or like you can take all your crankiness out on someone else. It's an easy thing to right. do. And so that sometimes those aren't as fruitful as they would like them to be. So my question is, in your experience uh, as a bishop, is there a better way to go about this? Do you have any ideas about how to facilitate that communication? Yeah, no, I get you because back in the day, I did a lot of talks to presbyterates. So bishops would call upon me to come and, you know, presbyteral day and the big retreat. And you get, yeah. in some cases, hundreds of guys in the room, the older guys in the in the golf shirts, the younger guys in Roman collars. And, you know, <laughs> so I, I'm used to that. And uh, I would always try to find something that I thought would draw us all together as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, not so much get into the nitty gritty of some divisive issue. Um, but I, I get your point that in those big gatherings, it can be really hard because it's either people get up and they give a speech, you know, um, or it's just too big to facilitate a conversation. What, what I think is better, get a small group. So I don't know, maybe priests around you, get two or three younger, two or three older guys. Let's have dinner and maybe something like this. Have the older guys identify a book that meant a lot to them in their priesthood. The younger guys do the same thing. And then let's read the two books together. And then maybe have several sessions where we talk about that. Like, why did that book mean so much to you? You know, maybe to ask an older guy, when you were 30, you read this book and it really made the difference to you. And then you say, well, no, here's the books that, that we're reading and why they mean so much to us. That might be a better way to do it when it's uh, a little more local, fewer people, and you're focused on something objective, you know, something external right. to all of you. Um, yeah, that might work. Hmm. Speaking of, of books, you have a new book, uh, Renewing I Our do, Hope. I do, yeah. Yes. And yeah. Um, um, what, um, maybe do you just want to talk about it quickly, about um, why, why you wrote this, why you put this out? Yeah. It's published by Catholic U Press, which I was very happy about, my old alma mater. And um, it's a collection of, of essays and talks and speeches I've given the last roughly five years. So most of them since I've been a bishop. A couple from before I was named a bishop. Um, they're roughly gathered around this theme, I'd say, of evangelization, which has been my main preoccupation. But call it the evangelization of the culture, which is, you know, Cardinal George's great theme, and he sort of bequeathed that to me. He got it from John Paul II. And um, most of the essays are, are around that. So, you know, the question of the nuns, right, the, the unaffiliated, and how do we reach them and so on. But also things like, you know, relativism within the culture. There's also a, a sermon I gave at the first ordination of priests that I did. I ordained a group of Dominicans last year, and I have the homily I gave to them, and kind of laying out what I think is the task of a, of a priest today. Um, so it's a whole slew of essays. Some are very academic. Um, so I, I kind of miss that. You know, my training and my whole background was as a professor. And um, that's, if you'd asked me, you know, 20-some years ago, I would have envisioned that was my trajectory, was to go into university work and all that. So I, I miss it, and uh, I try every year to accept at least a couple invitations to do a serious paper. So it keeps my, my mind in the game and you know, doing research work. So a lot of what you read there are, are those lectures and talks. So in this, in this book, you, you, talk, you have an article about an evangelizing priest. Uh, they say that they have to be deeply in love with Jesus. They have to know the uh, story of Israel. 
They have to be deeply and critically conversant with contemporary culture and and form to see transcendence and to point people towards it and to have the heart of missionaries. So like that's a I think a, I I would agree, I mean I totally agree with that obviously and yet so but where are these new fields of missions because i think this is the thing like in a way like we always we, how do i want to put it we we love to talk about evangelization a lot in the church but we struggle to go the next step um so how can we like how can priests and and i think we can also extend this because i think all those qualities extend to lay people as well right um how can we like what are these new mission fields and and where and how can the church navigate them because i think sometimes there's a fear this is all new right and so when when something's new we we tend to be a little bit hesitant uh tend to be maybe afraid of making mistakes etc um but we i think we need to have that that courage to make that next step so how do we make these next steps of evangelizing and, and keeping those core missionary ideas in our mind well, in terms of the mission field, I just think the the nuns, the N O N E S, uh, this army now of especially young people who claim no religious affiliation, I, I think that's a great way for the church to focus its energies is on that group of people, and they're especially strong in the under thirty set. So I'd say to any evangelizing priest, um, focus your attention there. And then secondly, I'd say the best way to reach them is social media, because they're not going to come to our, our churches. To be frank, when I was at the Youth Synod in Rome back in 2018, so I was a delegate to that synod, and, you know, we're talking about this all the time, young people, how to reach them, and I felt so much of the conversation was still, to me, was very old-fashioned. It was um, parish programs and how to get them to our parishes and how to... And at one point, I did stand up at the synod and say, but they're not going to come to our parish programs. Mm -hmm. I said, that's an old-school approach. I said, we have to use this great tool we've been given of the social media to reach out. So, I mean, word on fire in many ways, my ministry has all been born of this, a desire to evangelize precisely this group and precisely using the tools given to us. Uh, I think that's the most exciting mission field and the most exciting means that we got going right now. Do you find there's hesitancy around the use of social media in, in church leadership? Well, church leadership, not so much, they don't get it. Uh, now, that's that's increasingly uh, not the case. I think as, as mm-hmm. church leadership, uh, you know, moves along, the, the standard older generation, I think, had a hard time understanding it. But young priests like yourselves, I mean, certainly get it. They certainly understand it. They know the social media um, by direct experience. I had to learn it very kind of, you know, through indirect experience. Mm-hmm. Um but no, I think that's shifting. I think they are beginning to get it. I hear it a lot at the bishops' conference. We start talking about something, inevitably someone will say, but we have to do this in digital form, or we have to do this through video or through media. We can't just be writing a document. So I think they are beginning to understand that. That's something I did as chair of the committee. I'm ending my time as chair of the evangelization committee, but um, whenever I could, I would, I would make the case about the nuns and about the best way to reach them. I agree with all that, but also at some point in time, we do want them to come to the parish. Of course, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah, but like sometimes like, oh, but what are we, what are we welcoming them into? And I think maybe a lot of us have heard horror stories of like, we talk to someone, yeah. we have to make a connection over social media, they go to their parish right. and they're 
underwhelmed. Because I think there can be an emphasis where if you have a perfect liturgy, then everything will be fixed forever. Right. And while I think there's an importance in, in liturgy being done well, and maybe you can speak to younger priests uh, in this, what is the role of a parochial vicar in a parish? How do you handle things if there's different philosophies uh, in your parish? Because sometimes I think there's some frustration, or sometimes I worry about young guys kind of being burnt out by just ordinary parish life and the inability to be more of a part of the vision, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you're raising a lot of issues there, I think. I'm sorry, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey. You know, in terms of like the burnout thing, there you've got to stay close to the spiritual sources, and that's, you know, the, your prayer and study and all that. I mean, so that's really key. Um, Find something in your ministry, though, that you really, you really are passionate about. Now, like like any job or profession or vocation, there are things you have to do that maybe aren't in your wheelhouse. It's not like, like paperwork. The... Sure, yeah. And you know, when I was a professor, I always hated grading papers. I just did. I, was, I, I hated it, but I did it. And I, and I used to say to myself, "Well, okay, this is work. I love teaching. I love you know interacting with the students. I love reading to get ready for a course. I hated." reading and grading papers. Okay. Same is true in parish life. You know, there, there are certain things you have to do or, or things that maybe you're not all that great at, but you still have to do them. Okay. That's par for the course. But in the midst of that, find something you are really excited about. When This goes back now, you know, centuries. When I was newly ordained uh, and I'm in this parish, I'm 26 years old, doing all the usual parish things, but I decided to do, you know, an adult formation thing. And so it was like every other Tuesday, or maybe it was every Tuesday, in the evening, and I, I just invited people to come, and we'd do Bible study and theology, and I would give talks, and well, I loved it, you know, I loved it. It was sort of my wheelhouse, it was what I was good at, and this lovely community was built up over time, and you know, okay, that was where I got a lot of my um, excitement from, but then, you know, you have to do the other things, too, that might not be in your wheelhouse. Um, but for you guys, I think, um, doing what you're doing with this the podcast and and i've told parish priests start start a website or a youtube video start talking about what's going on in the culture a q a thing you know uh i don't know if you knew about this but i've done it twice now this reddit ama do you know about that yeah. mm -hmm. they ask me anything and both times is really interesting to me uh and both times they were hugely popular and as i always say not because of me i'm sure 99% had no idea who I was, but I was announcing myself simply as a bishop who likes to talk to atheists and non-believers, and we got these enormous responses, you know? Well, I was able to discern very quickly what's on the mind of young people, and yeah. okay, here's a bishop at least responding. <laughs> so I've told young guys, and I can click them off for it if you want, the things that, that are, are most central, Have there's your program now for... Uh, uh, youth outreach, or there's your lecture series, or there's there's a series of videos you could do is addressing these issues. So I think there's a lot of creative things you can do and find something you're really passionate about. Cool. Um, great. So the other thing we wanted to talk to you about today, uh, this yeah. is awesome stuff on priesthood, and I hope people find a lot of fruit in it. But uh, I mean, you've been talking a lot lately about the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are big fans of the council here at Clearly Speaking. We've talked about <laughs> it a cool. lot. Uh, we, we, because like, I, I remember for me, um, I actually took an elective course on the council at my seminary. 
And my teacher, Father Don McDonald, who is a great mentor to me, he's a Franciscan, great mentor. His class on Vatican II just really helped me shape for me how central the council is, that yeah. actually it, it's, it's, it's protect, it's a way, it's, it's building up the church again to deal with these new cultural forces that we, we've never seen before and trying to get deeper into the church's identity as the sacrament of salvation, et cetera. So I know for mm -hmm. me personally, Vatican II is, 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 is huge. There's also, there's a, there's a resistance to the council that's, that's emerged and it's getting a bit stronger. And like, I, I, I think God, Anthony can, can attest this too. Initially it seemed like just like an online conversation, mm -hmm. but now it's seeping into the parishes. I'm seeing it pastorally. Why do you? Where do you think this this resistance come from? And why do you think? Why do you think the church is like? Why do you think the council really is actually the response we need? Well, a first observation is this: as a Catholic, you can't be opposed to an ecumenical council gathered, <laughs> as they say, cum petro et sub petro, right, with Peter and, and under Peter's authority. There's no higher authority in the life of the church than an ecumenical council gathered by the Pope and under his leadership and with his approval. And so it's just bad ecclesiology. It's just bad Catholicism to say, oh yeah, Vatican II, we should dispense with that. What you have heard from people today, with that view, I have zero patience. And I think no priest should have any patience with the view that we can somehow dispense with or you know, pick and choose what we like from a council. As I argued, why not do it with Chalcedon and Trent and, and uh, Vatican I? So I, I have zero patience with that. Now, where's it coming from, some of this frustration? I get it. The church has got all kinds of issues and problems. We just lived through the sex abuse scandal. We've gone through, you know, in the West, I want to point out, in, let's see, in Europe and Canada, America, and so on, we have gone through a decline in different areas of the church's life. And so people get frustrated, they get angry, and it's a convenient target to say, ah, 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 you know, there it is, this big council, prior to the council, everything was great, then there's this great decline, the council is the problem. Well, that's got two problems, both in formal logic. One is the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, right? Because it came after, it must be because of. And so there's that tendency to say, oh, well, these things happen after the council, therefore the council's to blame. The other logical problem is the fallacy of singular causality. So we can find one great cause for all the troubles we're having. You know, the decline in certain areas of church life in the West is a very complex phenomenon and is caused by all sorts of factors. Uh, a couple observations. One is, look at the church in Africa. Uh, the post-conciliar African Catholic Church is flourishing, is booming. And trust me, it's not based on a nostalgic return to the Latin Mass. I mean, I've been to Africa and seen African liturgies. Uh, to me, it's a beautiful example of the rich enculturation of the faith that Vatican II was about. Look at the church in parts of Asia where it's, it's flourishing. There is a kind of myopia of a lot of people in the West to say, well, you know, looking at our culture and our society, things look grim in certain ways. So I, I think you've got to get past that and accept a, a much richer account of how we, in our part of the world, got into our situation. So those are a couple of general thoughts about it. Uh, the bottom line is we, we can't be uh, uh, 
distancing ourselves from or calling radically into question an ecumenical council. Better to find the authentic purpose and meaning of the council. Uh, my great mentor, Cardinal George, always maintained Vatican II was a missionary council. Its purpose was to bring the lumen to the Gentiles, the lumen being Christ, bring him out to the peoples of the world. So bring Christ to the modern world. It wasn't a radical rethinking of our doctrines. It wasn't. There was no need for that. Vatican II is not a rupture with the great doctrinal tradition of the church. It was more of a missionary council, and, and therefore, yes, indeed, had a pastoral focus, I would say, to bring Christ to the nations. Um, when we read the texts under that rubric and we read them carefully on their own terms, I think we find a very rich articulation of what the mission still is. You know, So anyway, I, I'm very impatient with this um, uh, dismissal of Vatican II, which I think is inadmissible for a Catholic and, and represents a, a very immature appreciation of, of the council texts themselves. So end of harangue on that. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, but I think the, uh, with the um, an increase in uh, common rejection or difficulties with the council and the difficulty with authority right now, both as a culture and in the church because of the scandal, I think are very uh, interrelated. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, just as a culture, one of the things that we struggle with most is uh, this Catholic idea of obedience. And it's one of those things that I find difficult to preach about. Just like it's no one likes to preach about asking for money, yeah. uh, even though it's an important <laughs> thing and even a spiritual thing for a parish. Sure. Like it's very difficult to talk about obedience because immediately people think like, well, should you be o obedient to McCarrick? Should you be obedient to this? Um, could you say a few words maybe about like the Catholic understanding of that, of obedience, of, of proper authority in the church? Well, yeah. I mean, we have a hierarchical church. And so, you know, uh, as we priests know that when you're ordained and you, you put your hands within the hands of the man ordaining you? And do you promise obedience and respect to me and my successors? And I did that uh, with uh, Joseph Bernadine in 1986. I had no idea who Francis George even was at that point, but he became one of his successors and, and I was obedient to him. And so, I mean, that structure is, is fundamental to Catholicism. Now, are there limits to it? Sure. You don't obey someone who's commanding you to do something that's intrinsically evil. So you, you've got an authority figure, and you're beholden to him, but he's telling you to do something that you know to be morally objectionable. Of course, of course there's a limit to that obedience. Um, would a priest, let's say, in Washington, when Cardinal McCarrick was archbishop, and he's giving him you know, his assignment, is he obliged to obey him? Yeah, sure. If he's telling him to do something immoral, of course not. You know, so there's, it's, it's not a sort of blind or you know, un, unquestioning, uncritical obedience. It's not a, you know, I'm just following orders kind of obedience. No, no. There's a, a moral limit, spiritual limit. If, if, a, if your superior is telling you to renounce your Christian faith, well, of course you, you don't obey that. So, no, there are clear limits to it. And I get people's frustration. I mean, trust me, I wrote a little book about it called Letter to a Suffering Church about, you know, the frustration of the Catholic people that I feel as a Catholic. I mean, before I'm a priest or bishop, I'm a Catholic, you know. And my own frustration with what I called a rot in the priesthood, not that all priests are rotten, <laughs> but that there was something the matter, you know? There was something the matter in the priesthood, and there was something the matter with the leadership of the church that allowed this thing to, to uh, uh, flourish as long as it did. 
So I have no hesitation naming all of that and um, raising my voice that it would change and that, that laity and priests and bishops should do all they can to make that change. So I have, I have no quarrel with that, but none of that speaks against obedience in the legitimate spiritual sense, you know, that I'm, I'm under obedience to a legitimate authority who's commanding me in a way that is not repugnant to morality or the spiritual life. I guess that's how I'd put it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there seems to be kind of a growing need for a, <laughs> this is going to be silly, like a new, new evangelization. <laughs> like, I think many young people who have really, have discovered kind of the riches of the Catholic tradition on their own. And there's sometimes can be a feeling of betrayal, like why didn't I learn this at my parish? You know, mm -hmm. um, and then um, there's an anger with what's going on as far as the scandal, and then they find people who share that same anger, and that's a relief. And so there's a trust built with this person, and then they get led down yeah. doctrinal errors and this sort of thing, right? Uh, and so if there's not already a respect for someone who's trying to bring them out of it, like my question is, how much do you go into the weeds about this and that doctrinal thing? And, but part of me feels like this is actually more of a spiritual uh, problem, right. more so than intellectual. No, or let me just stay with that for a second. I think the, it's like someone is so angry that they burn down their own house with themselves in it. You know what I'm saying? So am I angry at McCarrick? Am I angry at the rot in the priesthood? Am I angry at the terrible abuse of authority that took place in way too many cases? Yes. And am I going to wield a, a torch to try to burn that stuff down or burn it out. Yes. Or like a good surgeon to go in and cut that out. What you don't want to become is a firebrand who takes the and I'm going to burn the whole house down and I'll be I'll go down with it. Or be such a ham-handed surgeon as I'm cutting out the the cancer, I'm also destroying every organ in the body. <laughs> That's the trouble frankly with some of the rad trad crowd. I think that Yes, they're angry. I get it. I'm angry, too, about these things. But you don't burn the house down. You, you, you direct your anger appropriately and prudently so that you can, you can excise what's problematic. But that's why, like, an attack on the Second Vatican Council, that's burning the house down. Because you burn down Second Vatican Council, what's going to stop you from burning down the Council of Trent or the Council of Nicaea or Chalcedon? What's going to stop you? As I've said before, you've adopted a fundamentally Protestant ecclesiology. And now I know you're, you think you're Mr. Uber conservative Catholic, but you become a Protestant effectively. If you're saying, my private judgment has authority over a council, I can decide based on my own private whim what's acceptable or not in a council, that's called burning the whole house down. So don't burn the house down, just burn the things that need cleansing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's my second harangue. But I, that's what I see. <laughs> that's good. And what yeah. you're, you're drawing attention to, I think, in a good way, that's the problem. Yeah. Or the old image, you're just you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. You know, so I'm so angry at some of these these uh, dead branches, but I'm, I'm going to cut the whole tree down that I'm, I'm sitting in. So anyway, that's the problem, it seems to me. So you... Um you know, kind of continuing with this line of thought, and, and it's something you mentioned a bit earlier, the fact that the, the council is a missionary council, right? And this is like, yeah. this is just observable from uh, magisterial documents that it come out. Like, I, I really noticed a, a real turn in the magisterium. Before the council, you hear about kind of mission as like a, maybe to the third world or to Africa yeah. or whatever. That's a missionary, right? But after the council, like every single pope is just banging yeah. on the door, mission, mission, mission. And I think this is the hidden gem 
of the effect of the council. Uh, I think we're starting to unravel it a little bit in a good way, but off, it also means that we were lacking something prior to the council, right? That that the church yeah. was lacking something, and they, and I, in my own little research around the council and, and around the theology of, of Pope Benedict, you know, I've done a lot of reading about what the, was the church like in the twenties, thirties, and forties. And it wasn't as ideal no. as people think it was. Like I remember reading this article by Ratzinger where he is, um, it's in the 1950s, and he's decrying against the horrible catechesis in Germany, right? So the council comes along to try and say, we need to reinvigorate our catechetical methods. We need to reinvigorate ourselves as, as a missionary church to correct this. So like... I guess my question is 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 going around along these lines. What was the why was the council really called, and and what what needed to be fixed? Well, t- take this as a starting point. So you've got what is it twenty five hundred or so bishops gathered from all over the world at Vatican II, the largest conciliar gathering in history, and uh, the votes. I, I think the closest vote was Dignitatis Humanae was like. 2300 and something to 70. That was the closest vote there was. The other documents are all like 2450 to 5, right? Look at the at the lineup. My point there is in 1962 to 1965, 2500 bishops from all over the world overwhelmingly voted for the Vatican II documents. That tells me something. That tells me that they felt something was needed. There, there was a development needed, I say doctrinally and pastorally. It's in, naive in the extreme to say, gosh, you know, everything was great. Just go back to 1957. Everything was just great. Well, then riddle me this. Why did all these men overwhelmingly vote for the Vatican II documents? I could see if the, you know, the votes were really real close. There's a lot of you know, debate. There was debate to be sure, but once they worked through the text, they overwhelmingly voted for them. That tells you a lot about what they perceive the need to be. Now, what was it? Read the documents. Go through them one by one, and you'll see exactly what they felt needed. Um, in our understanding of the church, you know, uh, to get away from maybe a hyper hierarchical, you know, totally pre-centered view of the church to this much more, you know, holiness of all the laity and the missionary purpose of the church and all that. That's what they saw the need to be. Um, go through the documents on, on priesthood, the documents on, on the laity. You'll see what they thought needed addressing. Um, now, the implementation of it, how people read and implemented those documents, that's a whole other issue. And I, was, I started my, my career as a writer criticizing the implementation of Vatican II in our country. So I, I'm certainly sympathetic with that. But I'm not, not sympathetic with the view that everything was hunky-dory in 1957, and then anomalously, the overwhelming majority of bishops all over the world made this massive mistake called Vatican II. With that, I have no sympathy. So our, our time is coming close to an end, and, and I, I want to kind of end by asking, it, it's, um, as I said to you before we recorded, a lot of our, our listeners are young, you know, and like Anthony's questions and my questions come from listening yeah. to our listeners, who, by the way, told us to say thank you for your ministry. A lot of people were reaching out oh, saying, good. please let them know, people saying, I came back to the church because of Word on Fire and stuff like So they wanted to let you know you're doing good work, um, which that. is always important to hear in ministry. Yeah. Sometimes you don't, you wonder, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things that we, we notice, 
it, it seems to be like a bit of a, a hesitation in in regards to public discussion around the implementation of the councils, the question of liturgy. Um, and and as I you know you've mentioned it before, some of the uh, the weird experimentations that have yeah. that went on after the council. <laughs> Father Anthony and I, thankfully, because of our generation, we we kind of missed a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think sometimes there are legitimate questions around the church's uh, liturgy. Like I remember reading stuff by Bouye on this, and and mm-hmm. and his frustrations even around it. And Pope Benedict talks about how uh, uh, how reform was perhaps in a bureaucratic way instead of an mm-hmm. organic way. Yeah. So this is the question that seems to be the center for a lot of people. How can we move forward in this discussion? And is there is there a possibility for asking these questions around? Was was the reform did the reform happen as the council intended it? No, and I think a good way to do that is to reread the document. Let's get a group of priests, maybe older and younger, together. Let's read together Sacrosanctum Concilium. Mm-hmm. Read it. Mm-hmm. I bet even a lot of priests, if if they ran their eyes past it, maybe it's a long time ago. Sit down together, maybe get six or seven of you, have a nice dinner, and you're going to read together Sacrosanctum Concilium. And what does that tell us about the nature of the liturgy, the reform of the liturgy, um, what were clearly excesses in the way that the document was implemented, what are paths forward? Uh, Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, you know, uh, from mm-hmm. not that many years ago, I think is an attempt to do that. It's to, it's to reread, revisit Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, I would recommend that. Going back to the text, uh, I think in a way the Vatican II texts have been the most ignored, maybe. <laughs> and one reason for that, to be honest, and here I'd be a bit critical, not of the content, but of the form. Um, the Vatican II documents are egregious in the history of the Church in, in the measure that they're more like extended essays than um, pithy doctrinal statements. So you look at you know, Vatican I, you look at uh, Trent, certainly, and there's a tendency just to kind of get to it and name it and define it. Vatican II chose the more expansive essay as the, as the vehicle for communication. Well, there's a shadow side of that. The, the good side is obvious that it's probably easier to read, it's more lyrical, it's more inviting, less, you know, officious. The shadow side is it's susceptible to greater interpretive range, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a uh, an extended essay and using more imagistic language and so on, it's open to a wider uh, range of, of interpretation. So that's the, the shadow side, if you want, of the form that Vatican II chose. But I'd recommend going back to those texts and in a docile spirit, read them again. Because my point there in talking about the form was I think it, it it's, they they weren't read. People got this big mm-hmm. text, you know, the documents of Vatican II, and it's like, oh gosh, how am I gonna get through this whole thing? Um, mm-hmm. Read them one at a time together. We have the 60th anniversary coming up, right? In 2022 will be the 60th anniversary of the of the opening of Vatican II. Not a bad time to revisit those texts. Absolutely. It's um, this is a this is a personal plug, I guess. But this is uh, I'm writing a book for OSV on the documents of the council, like for yeah. the average layperson who I get. If you don't have a theological education, this is not uh, this is a hard document to read. And yeah. so my hope and it, the idea is that it's going to be released on the 60th anniversary. So that oh, good. in the hope of like helping the people in the pews to say this is what the council actually said. 
And Good. this is why these things are important because I think that's, you know, I think unfortunately it's sometimes we forget that symbol matters in liturgy. And, and, and this is something Father Anthony brought up the other day in, a, in, a, in an interview he did. Like symbol matters. And I think sometimes that gets lost in discussions around liturgy that no, we need to find like the symbolic language again because that helps us understand the sacramental nature of the church. Well, that was key. And I, I'm glad you're writing that book. That's an important book. Yeah. And the church needs it. And uh, it's what worries me, I must say, at the present moment, what's worrying me the most right now is this hostility toward Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, to be fair, the, the extreme right is doing that. The extreme left, too, has always been, in its own way, uneasy with Vatican II. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I say a plague on both your houses. And uh, <laughs> read Vatican II. And it, it's not going to give you the rad trad extremism. It's not going to give you the, the liberal, let's, mm-hmm. you know, just surrender to the world project. It's Vatican II in all of its integrity, its theological richness, its spiritual depth. The greatest spirits of the 20th century in Catholicism produced those texts. Mm-hmm. The Bouillers and the Ratzingers and the, and the Rahners and the Wojtyłas and so on. I mean, the, the cream of the crop intellectually produce those texts, and then under the aegis of the bishops. That's a high moment in our Catholic history. And, uh, you know, those who, for different reasons and with different ideological purposes, want to dispense with those texts, plague on both your houses. And let's go back and, and read those texts lovingly and carefully. So thank you so much for coming on, Bishop Barron. We really appreciate the discussion. Yeah, my yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. I think the discussion really helped bring to uh, fruition a lot of the things we've talked about on our podcast for these last two years. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I know our listeners will really appreciate the discussion. So well, thank I'm, you. Thanks for agreeing with everything we've said on previous episodes and giving us That's your my purpose here. We really appreciate that. Thank <laughs> That's you. My purpose no, thank you guys. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Well, thanks everyone for uh, tuning into the podcast. Thank you again to Bishop Barron. Uh, who yeah. who was uh, a true gentleman in all this and he gave uh, us an hour of his time actually longer time. yeah because uh the word on fire people had a little trouble with their audio it was kind <laughs> of embarrassing yikes um, and it was great because at the beginning before we start recording uh father steve grunau just kind of leans in all muscly and everything and just gives us a <laughs> thumbs up and i'm like all right yes we know you're there to protect the bishop we, yes, we understand we nice. that you're his please bodyguard don't beat us up, father steve. and uh please don't beat us up we are we are terrified of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but everything uh, no. But thanks to everybody on Word on Fire. Um, uh, yeah, thanks I think to Brandon. Vouch I, for us. Can I? Can I? I want to give a special shout to Brandon Vaught, who is uh, the bishop. Yes. Who's the right hand of the bishop in this way, and uh, <laughs> who I reached out to uh, with a, a word and a prayer, like a hope and a prayer. In in this maybe like maybe this will happen. I doubt it, and. Brandon said, I'm going to go, I, I really want, I really want to think Bishop, this would be a good venue for Bishop Barron. So really grateful to Brandon and, uh, and for, for helping with this. I want to also give a, a, a special shout out to Rachel Bowman, who where I was doing the initial email to kind of say, Hey, um, this is what I want to say. I, I kind of sent it to her cause she does writing for word on fire. So I'm like, you know, the people, how should I word this? And she, she helped me rework the email a bit. So I, I, I attribute the success to her too. So just, I mean, yeah, this is yeah. like, this is and a huge, to, uh, this is a huge Joe, deal for us. Joe who helped us out. Yeah. Uh, also, I want to shout out to the garbage truck driver who uh, interrupted our interview <laughs> right. uh, over in California. Uh, it was a bold move. He just He's doing his thing. He's like, yeah. I don't care if the bishop's talking to people. I got yeah. garbage to get rid of. Yeah. And I really respect that. Yeah, that's right. And obviously, thank you to our team um, 
Nick and Riley as well, who always help out with stuff in the background, who are sure. doing our communications, our editing, and all that stuff. And uh, and they're also telling us to wrap it up because it's been a long episode. <laughs> it has been a long episode. So, um, so th- and also thank you to our listeners. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, everything. Wherever you find podcasts, we are there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fr Harrison. You can find me um, just respecting our garbage truck drivers. That's right. Uh, you can email the podcast, clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, at Twitter at clericalpod. And please leave a review and tell your friends about the podcast and tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. God bless. Peace. <laughs>